here we are now with the next instalment of Finding Other Worlds. This is a series exclusively for the Andrew Lake podcast, and it is a commentary on the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Have you ever gone back to your childhood neighborhood? Or have you ever just gone back to somewhere that you haven't been in years and years and years? Go back to that place and just look around and reminisce and bask in some nostalgia for a while. Have you ever done that? Can you remember what that's like? Can you feel what that's like? I myself have had quite large dosages of nostalgia in my time. It's built me quite a tolerance. And I think there's something to learn in going back to those places. And it's a lesson that really can only be learnt with a subtle understanding of where you sit within the continuum of time. And I went back to my childhood neighbourhood the other time, another time, one time, and I was struck by how the memories came back. I was struck by how many things leaped out at me in my mind, in my being, so I was just slowly walking around that childhood neighborhood, which had, well, it had a memory to every corner of it. It had a story behind every little spot, every patch of grass, every tree, every house, every little area that we used to play in and be in. And of course, the place had changed. I could see that, but I could also see that Some things hadn't changed. It was still the place that it was. It was still very much holding something in it that had remained and had been there since, well, even before I had been there. And I think that's a kind of subtlety. That's a kind of sensitivity that not everyone has. You really have to be quite sensitive. I mean, how many people would do that and actually do it meditatively, right? How, how many people would do that as a meditation, as an awareness technique, as an inquiry into the nature of time and space, as a kind of experiment to see what exactly is this thing that we find ourselves within, this dream, this life. So, if you haven't done this, then now's your chance to learn something. Go back to your childhood town, somewhere you haven't been in a very long time, and do it meditatively, do it alone. Don't go with someone, because if you go with someone, you're just going to be clouded by what they think and what they're doing and what they're saying, and then you'll say things and you'll want to explain stories, and that will just get all tied up into the internal narratives. If you go alone, then you have the chance to just sense what that place is. And if you get a strong sense of it, and you're really quiet in your mind, then you can have insights into, well, how much has happened since then, how much you've been through, how much, how much has changed. It's almost like you're, you're re-entering the way that you were when you were in that place oh so long ago. And yet it's not a complete entrance because still how you are now remains 
in some form, in some way, in some degree. So you're bridging something. You're bridging something from your deep past. Now, this experience, if you are sensitive to it, well, it can become a bit addictive. It can become a bit like, oh, I like this feeling. How do I get more of this? It's kind of a, I guess you could call it a meditative state or a consciousness state. I don't know if it entirely qualifies as a state rather than an experience. But watch out for that because then you're on the slippery slope of <laughs> of having too much want for nostalgia. And then you'll be driving around and looking for all the places that you haven't been in a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've definitely known that trip. I've known that game. And the other thing, of course, is if you visit the old place and then you do your inquiry and then you go back again the next week, well, something will have worn off. Something will have not quite happened as well the second time. And I believe you can actually... I don't see this as a good thing, actually. I see this as a bad thing. But you can actually be wanting of certain things within you. Almost like, well, to put it simply, you become addicted to the nostalgic feelings. You become wanting to have them more often. So those are some... Those are some thoughts that actually I was having when I started reading Prince Caspian, which is the next book in the Chronicles of Narnia that we're talking about. So let's get into this story about a prince named Caspian. And the story begins... In London. London. Ah, yes, London. And in London, there is a train station with four children sitting on it, waiting to go off to boarding school. Two boys and two girls, as a matter of fact. And you know these characters if you've been listening along to our series, or if you just know Narnia. It's Peter, Edmund, Lucy, and Susan. These old fellas, these old mischievous kids. What are they up to now? Well, the girls, they're going off to boarding school in one direction, and the boys, they're going off to boarding school in another. So they're sitting there waiting to be transported to a new world. And this is particularly different for Lucy because it's her first time at a boarding school. So she's probably the one in the most nervousness, but well, it's just school really. It's a bit of a drag for what they're mostly thinking. There's not much excitement to it. So they're sitting on the station, waiting to go off to boarding school. And as it happens (laughs) in these stories, suddenly someone's pulling on someone, and they're not sure how or why. And then someone's pulling more, and then they're becoming very uncomfortable, and there's a swirl of colours... And there's a swish and a magic and a patinga-bating. And all of a sudden they find themselves in a totally different place. In a totally different land. In the middle of the forest. So, they come to and they're looking around and they're wondering, well, is this it? Is this Narnia? Is this what's happening? We've been called back to Narnia again. And they look around, they can't see anyone, and they come down to a beach, and they say, well, here's the beach, here's the forest, let's walk around. And they walk along the beach, searching and just exploring. And they walk long enough that they realise that, well, they're actually on an island, They're actually isolated. The beach turns round enough for them to see that, well, they're stuck. And also there is land that is just a little bit further off. So it's not like it's a 
island in the middle of the ocean. It's just a sort of island that has been to one side of the coast. So they continue exploring this island and they come across some apple trees so they're able to eat some food. And as they explore, they come across some ruins. And these ruins are an old castle which had its roof fallen in, cracks all through it, vines and trees growing all over it. And it appears that it hasn't been used in hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're sort of looking around and talking to themselves and saying, well, doesn't this place look familiar? Doesn't this remind you of the old times? And of course, they're talking about all the old times and the things they used to do because you remember the last time these four were in Narnia, they actually became kings and queens and lived in a castle. And now, well, they're sort of having these memories come back to them about, oh, remember the time the dwarf did this and oh, remember the time we chased off those stags and all these sorts of things. And they're looking around and one of them finds an old chess piece, a little piece from a chessboard, and they think, well, doesn't that look so familiar? And as they talk amongst themselves, well, Peter says, you know what? I think this might actually be the place. This is the old castle that we were in last time we were in Narnia. And they think, well, it's only been a year since they were last here. How could hundreds and hundreds and possibly even a thousand years have changed since then? And they talk amongst themselves and they realise, well, Narnia doesn't operate on the same time. As you remember, the last time they came back, well, it had been like they'd only been gone for a few minutes, which meant that, well, they'd lived a whole life in the space of an, only a few minutes. So they work out that Narnia time is different to the time of London and the world they're from. And then they say, well, if it is the castle, let's go down and see if the old treasure chest is there, the old treasure room. And they go down and they figure out that, well, this is the place, it looks to be the place, and they dig up the treasure and they get into the dungeon where all the secret things are held and there's all this gold and all this jewellery and all these valuable things. And they even find their old gifts that they had from Santa, that they were given from Santa. So Edmund, well, he didn't have one, but the others got, well, what did they get? Lucy got her healing potion, Susan got her bow and arrow, and Peter got his sword and his shield. But the other prop that's missing is Susan's horn. They can't find Susan's horn. So that was the horn that was to be blown when you need help, when you need someone to come to the rescue so that unfortunately is missing and so the kids are sort of looking around and another thing is that well Peter wonders if he's even able to remember the lessons that he's learnt in the life that he lived previously in Narnia and they're also wondering well why why are they here why why has this happened They've just sort of turned up in this desolate place and ages passed. What's the point of them being here? There must be some reason. There must be some mission or some something, right? Well, what, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to just sit around in these ruins and eat apples off the trees all day and reminisce about times past? What are they supposed to do? So... After some time, when one of them is on a lookout, they see a boat turning up, and there are two men in this boat, and it looks like they've got 
this dwarf captured as a prisoner. And they're sort of talking amongst themselves about how they're going to drown this dwarf, tie him up and throw him overboard or send him stuck under the water. So as they're doing this, Susan shoots an arrow just into one of the side parts of the boat and the two men, well, they get spooked. They say, well, what's going on? Ah, And they jump out and swim to shore and then run off and they're scared. And they're sort sort of thinking, well, what's got them so spooked? And then the other kids come down and sort of pull up the boat and, well, now they've got this dwarf on their hands. And he's sort of looking at them and thinking, well, what have we got here? And they invite him in. They get him to sit down. They feed him some apples. And they get to talking. And that's when, well, it starts to come out what exactly the situation is and what's going on. And it takes a bit of back and forth because the dwarf is trying to work out, well, what do they know? Where are they from? And how things are and what things are up to. And of course, the kids want to know about, well, what's the state of Narnia? How how are things? Who's in charge? Is there peace? Is there prosperity? These sorts of things. So they find out that currently Narnia is at war and the war is between this uncle who thinks he's king, who isn't really, and this nephew who is the king. And this nephew is Prince Caspian, the rightful heir to the throne of Narnia, to the kingdom of Narnia. And the dwarf sort of has to back up and, well, explain a little bit of the history to the kids. So he allows himself the freedom to tell the story of Caspian. And the story of Caspian is rather interesting because it's got a lot of backs and forths. Caspian... is learning about certain things from his tutor. He's learning stories about the old Narnia. And his uncle doesn't like this. His uncle is very much against this. In fact, he's so much against this that he gets rid of the tutor. He fires her. And then, well, Caspian gets a new tutor. And he's a funny-looking guy, a little bit short. It comes out later that he's half-dwarf. But this tutor also tells stories of the old Narnia. Now, the history here is that Narnia was conquered by Caspian I, and he became king over the lands, and then something like eight or nine generations later, well, this is Caspian the Ninth, Caspian the Tenth, and he's the rightful heir. But under the current regime, well, it's his uncle that is king, because the prince is too young. And this current uncle, this current lord, had had done a sort of kind of treachery of weeding out and secretly assassinating and having mistakes happen and accidents happen to the previous king once he'd gone and his advisors once he'd gone. So he'd sort of coerced his way into becoming the king and he wasn't really the king. So he's not right the king. He's not really the king. So the story goes that Caspian is getting lessons from his tutor and learning about the old Narnia and his tutor is telling him all sorts of things. There's even a scene where they wake up late one night 
to go up to one of the towers of the castle to see an alignment of some of the stars. And when they're up there, they're able to talk more about the old Narnia. And they realize this time, of course, that they have to keep it in secret. They have to keep it a secret. They have to actually not let on that he's learning these things. And that's an important illustration. That's an important thing to understand, which is that there are things in your education that are dogmatic. They are closed. They are not open to other worldviews. And this is how, well, this is how different worlds work, right? This is what happens when you have two worlds sort of clashing against each other. And we're finding this now, interestingly enough, within Narnia. So it's not like this is Narnia and some other place. It's not like Narnia and London, but it's actually happening within Narnia. It's like the old Narnia, which is the mythological history of the White Witch and the Edmund, Lucy, Peter and Susan and the talking animals and these sorts of things and all these magical things. But now in the same very land, in the same very place, geographically, well, now it's occupied by these people. It's predominantly run by humans. And the history that they're teaching is that, well, actually there are no talking animals. Things aren't quite like that. Those are just myths. Those are just legends. Now, isn't that a story? Isn't that a thing to make as a statement about the education system, about how paradigms are, about how history is, about what certain worldviews say about other worldviews. And basically, well, what they say is that they're not true. They don't exist. And also you're going to get in trouble if you say they are. You're going to get in trouble if you even talk about them. So I think the message is clear. I think it's quite an obvious statement that the author is making about how it is that different worlds are spoken about in the education system with the younger generation. And the insight that is to be learned from this is to be curious to actually believe, to actually listen, to actually see the value in someone who is telling you stories from old, from afar. Now, the thing about this new tutor that Caspian has is, well, he's actually lived the stories. He knows them himself. So that's another reason to listen to his tutor that he finds. So, it comes out that the so-called queen, or the queen in acting, the non-rightful queen, becomes pregnant, and she has a baby. So now this uncle, this unrightful king, and his wife have a baby, they realize, this Tudor and Caspian, that, well, now Caspian's in danger. He's going to be assassinated because the king will want his son to be the next king. And rightfully, well, it's actually Caspian who's next in line. So they make a getaway. They escape. Caspian runs for it before he is assassinated. And as he escapes, well, a bunch of things go down and he ends up with the old Narnians. He ends up meeting a badger that can talk. And he's sort of in their place and they're sort of 
standing around thinking, well, what, what are we going to do with him? What are we going to do? He might be one of them or he might be so bad and maybe we should kill him. Maybe we should just get rid of him altogether. But he comes to and Caspian finds himself in this situation, which is rather quite awkward because he is trying to convince them that he's on their side, right? Because Caspian loves to hear the old tales. He loves to support the talking animals. He's all about the magic and all about having things good for them. And yet he's come from this place, from this sort of tyrannical race, which is occupying the lands and suppressing the history and the stories of the lands. And so it's like, well, you're on their side, aren't you? You've come from this dynasty of suppressing our culture and now you're telling us that you're on our side and you want to support us and that's a really strange situation to be in that is a very strange situation to be in to have your background to have your culture working against you well what is he going to do what can he do but And he keeps talking to them. And even it comes out, it's even worse when they find out, well, he's actually the king, right? He's the rightful king. He's the prince of Narnia. So they think, well, okay, so you're royalty. Now you're definitely in line with the other side. But he keeps talking to them. And he keeps saying, well, I like to hear the stories. I like to know about the stories. And he sort of sort of has this opening after some time. He has a kind of, well, they sort of they sort of get to know him. They get to see, well, what he's really like and what he's thinking. And one of the things he says that is that, well, at first those old stories did seem outlandish and he could only hope that they were true. But now that he's met talking animals, real talking animals, intelligent animals, well, then... It's opened up what could be possible. It's opened up what he can believe, what's likely. And furthermore, this has opened up whether Aslan is real. Now, even amongst the old Narnians, there are people who don't even entirely believe the old stories. They might say that, well, Aslan isn't really all he's cracked up to be. Maybe he isn't even real at all. So that's another thing to understand, is that when uh, tyranny suppresses your culture, well, it's successful. It actually works in stamping that out in so many ways. And the other side of this, or the other insight to get from this, is once you see that there are talking animals you realize that, well, Aslan could be real. And in that is a micro step or a micro kind of realization which sits along a continuum, which basically stipulates that, well, the more you see is possible, the more you come to believe Of what could be possible. The more of the outlandish and fairy tale things that you see, well, the more, really, you get to the point where you can see that anything is possible. And it's not so much the case that these things are outlandish or fairy tale-ish or even that far-fetched at all. So, He goes around and he's becoming good friends with these old Narnians now and he's actually meeting a lot of them, making friends and they move to a spot and they realise, well, Prince Caspian, he's the rightful heir and he's a pretty good guy. He could be king and, well, now there's actually a lot of us gathering together so we could raise an army. We could actually settle this. So there are battles And they go into battle and they choose the spot, they choose the ground. I guess it's, I believe it's called Aslan's How. I don't know what that is. 
I guess it's Aslan's hangout or his temple or something. But they set up there and, well, now the uncle, he's waging war because he wants to kill Caspian outright because, well, it's obvious that he's escaped. He can try him for treason or something. So there's a battle going on. And when they're in this battle, Caspian, in a moment of need, when they realize that things aren't looking good for them, and they really are actually not looking like they can win this battle, they decide to give a blow of the old horn, which was said to be magical. Now, this magic horn is one of the props which came from the old tales. And, of course, you know it was the horn that Susan was given by Santa. So, many of them are wondering, well, should we wait until we're really desperate? And another one says, well, if you wait too long, then you'll never get the chance to use it. And then another one says, well, we don't know what sort of form the help will come in. Maybe it will call Aslan himself. Maybe it will call some warrior. Who knows? And then another says, well, maybe they won't turn up here. Maybe the help will turn up somewhere else. So there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of not exactly, like like it's not exactly you just blow the horn and help turns up, right? It's not a sort of click of the fingers. So they do blow the horn and Caspian works out that, well, if help does come and it doesn't come here, they might have to go somewhere else to meet whoever is sent. And one of the places that they decide to... So they decide to send scouts out, basically, to meet them. And one of the places they decide to send them is the old castle the old castle off in the distant land and that's where we get up to where this dwarf is because he was one of the ones sent to this castle to see well has help come and as he's telling this story to Edmund Lucy Peter and Susan They sort of see it. It all clicks. They think, ah, okay, so we're here. This is the help. This was why we were brought to Narnia to come and help in this battle because Susan's horn was blown. And and even just in the image of your own horn that you had used for help, now calling you to be the help is a clever image Once you were the one needing the help and now you're the one giving the help. That shows how much they are very much different in how they stand with their experiences of Narnia. But the dwarf, he sort of looks at them and he's sort of like, "Uh, no, you're not the people. You're really just some kids. We're looking for warriors. Thank you very much. And the kids, well, they're like, no, don't you realize we were we were the kings. We are the people from the tales of old. I am King Peter, the high king, and so on. And so the dwarf is a bit unimpressed still and takes a bit of convincing. But what they do is they say, well, why don't we have a fight? Why don't we prove our skills to you? And Peter has a sword fight with him. And he actually ends up hurting him. And while he's having this sword fight, he's actually wondering, well, are my skills really up to what they were? Is it really going to come back to me? Do I really know what I'm doing? And then, of course, afterwards, there's a shooting competition between Susan and the dwarf. and. She feels a bit bad about this, especially considering that he's just been hurt by Peter. And she doesn't like to make him feel bad about how much better she is, but she is better. So that proves her worth. 
And then there's Lucy, who has her healing potion. And she's able to put a few drops on the wound. And he's healed right up. And that's enough for the dwarf to be convinced that, well, this is the help. These are the heroes. They are going to be able to be the rescue. So they travel to where Caspian is in his battle, in his war. And they keep talking. And one of the things the dwarf explains is that, well, there's sort of two camps in the animal world which is that you've got the old Narnia animals who are intelligent and can speak, but then there's also the animals that can't and are beastly and are violent. And he explains that sometimes even the talking animals go back to their beastly ways and they become unable to talk again. And Lucy sort of has this comment, which is, Something I'll quote to you, I'll paraphrase to you, because it's a very interesting observation that she makes. And she says, Wouldn't it be dreadful if someday in our world men and women started going wild inside, like the animals here, and yet still looked like men and women, so that you'd never know which one was which? And that is. Well, a statement to take note of. It's a poetic illustration to take note of, which is that on the surface, people do look like people. People do just look like how they are. But on the inside, how would you know? How would you know they are intelligible? How would you know how much peace they have? (laughs) Oh my goodness, the irony. How would you know? (laughs) Ah, Sometimes I laugh too much to myself. But I can't help it, so let it be as it is, however it comes out. I'm not one to suppress laughter. And let's make a point here. Let's make an understanding here. Which is that People can be insane on the inside and yet come across as totally normal, come across as unable to be differentiated from those that have clarity. And the answer is, well, you have to improve your seeing skills. That's one of the things you have to learn, is how to understand this, how to actually see past the surfaces. And I bet that in this Narnia place, there was a way to do that. You could actually tell, with enough experience, who is a good animal and who is a bad animal. Now, in the movies, you always have this thing, especially in the kids' movies. It's like, well, you can see who's a bad guy. You can see who's a good guy. You can see it straight away. It's obvious. They're a bad guy because they're ugly and they're dark and they've got a creaky tone of voice, these sorts of things. But that skill, that ability to see, well, that's something that needs to be deepened. And I mean that as a skill for life. So they continue on, and they're not entirely sure of the way. They get a bit lost. And... One day, one afternoon, Lucy sees a lion. And she sort of sees it as a sort of ghostly, etheric figure. And she's not quite sure if it was a trick of the light or not. But she says to the others, hey, hey, I saw a lion. It could be Aslan. He could be wanting us to follow him. He could be wanting us to go this way. He might be guiding us. And they're sort of in this way because they have to choose. Do they go down to the gully or up over the hill? And it's only Lucy that's seen him. And, well, we've been here before, haven't we? 
and Edmund, quite wisely, points this out. He says, Remember last time when Lucy said there was a magical wardrobe and we didn't believe her and it turned out to be true? This time, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. She's seen something. We need to believe her. We should be on her side. So Edmund is on her side because he's learnt his lesson. But Peter, well, he's taking control. He's the high king. He puts himself in the decision-making. And he says, no, we're actually going to go the other way. And they do go the other way. And it's a long way to go. And they actually encounter some trouble. They have someone shooting arrows at them. So they have to double back. They have to go the other way. And they find out that, well, that is the right way to go. And another night, as they're camping... Lucy goes for a walk around the forest and it's a very it's a very beautiful scene this this is actually something that is quite well there's a kind of magic to it she goes on these nighttime strolls and there's moonlight and she sort of has a kind of listening with the trees she has a kind of communion with the trees. She's not exactly speaking to them. She's more in a state of being in touch with nature. And I think it's important to understand that that's what's happening right before she meets Aslan for real. It's almost to say that to be in touch with nature, to be sensitive to the surrounds of the natural environment is to bring you into touch with God. It's to bring you into touch with the divine. So they're very beautiful scenes where she's having these nighttime strolls. And as she strolls, well, she meets Aslan and starts talking to him. And one of the things he says is, well, she says, oh, you're so big. And... One of the things he says is, well, each year you grow, you will find me bigger. And, well, the statement there is that the more you can conceptualize of something, the bigger your conception of God. And I would say that that goes even further beyond just conceptions, concepts but also to experiences. The more you can experience of something, the more you can experience of God. The more you can feel of something, well, the more you can feel of God, the more you, the more you can perceive of something, the more you can perceive God. And it goes for anything, right? So this is where meditation comes in. This is where you get the techniques of perception. Because you say, okay, for me to see God, I have to be able to see better. And I just have to get better at seeing by working on seeing. So instead of looking at lots of things, I'll just concentrate on one thing. And I'll practice my ability just to see one thing. For example, you can do candle gazing meditation. So you sit in the dark and you look at a candle and you observe it, you concentrate on it. And if you practice this, well, you start to see things. You start to notice the shifts in your perceptions. And I'm actually working at the moment on a meditation course and one of the meditations in that is called looking at a leaf and that's a guided meditation where you sit and you look at a leaf and we start to point out all the different components within your perception and all the different mechanics to what it means to see 
things like directing attention, things like focus, things like depth of field, things like moving your awareness to different areas within your being, first from your sight and your perception, to the feelings in your body, to the thoughts that you're having and how that is affecting your sight. And there are all sorts of explanations that we do. That's a very in-depth guided meditation which is designed specifically for this one insight, which is that if you can see one thing, you can see God. So... Lucy is the one that sees Aslan because she's having these strolls through nature. And another thing that comes out is that Aslan says, you should have followed me. You should have abandoned the others and let them gone down into the gully and stuck to your guns. Because, of course, Lucy knew that she had seen Aslan and yet still went the way that Peter wanted to go. And she's sort of she's sort of a bit taken aback by this, like, really, should I have done that? But Aslan insists. So this means that, well, now she's got to go back in the middle of the night and wake them up and tell them again that she's seen Aslan and she's going to go on with or without them. So she does that. And (laughs) it takes quite a bit of convincing to wake them up in the middle of the night. She has to go back and forth a bit. But when they realize that she's serious and she really is going to leave them, well, they start to take her seriously. And it's funny that it has to come to that. It's funny that it has to be so much all or nothing, right? Because remember, Lucy is the youngest and Peter is the eldest. So for Lucy to actually convince the whole lot and say, we're going in this direction, almost as a kind of act of leadership, she's got to put everything on the line. She's got to say, I'm doing it no matter what. Whereas Peter, with his decision the day before, it was like, well, we're going in this direction and it's my word because I'm the high king. He doesn't have to risk everything. He doesn't have to work so hard to convince everyone. They all sort of have to just follow along. So to Lucy's credit, very much to the credit of the character of Lucy for being able to stick to her guns and learn that lesson and actually get them up and off in the right direction. And the, and the funny thing is that it is the right thing to do. It's the correct thing to do. It's the truth of the matter. They really do need to meet up with Aslan. They really are going to meet up with Aslan if they do what she says. And yet it's the harder thing to do. It's the thing that takes more of a test of character. It's the thing that takes more convincing. So that's an interesting illustration. Now... They do meet up with Aslan, but he heads off. Wait, do they? Do the other kids meet Aslan? I can't remember. They might not exactly meet him. They might just follow him or his shadow or his sort of ghostly figure or something. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But the point of the next part of the plot is that they come to the place where Caspian is and they sort of sneak in and it's this funny scene where (laughs) it's this funny scene where Caspian is talking with these people in this room and the dwarf and Edmund, Lucy and Peter and Susan are outside listening in and what Caspian is saying or what some of his friends are saying is things like well How do we know the help is going to come? How do we know the stories are even true? And then another person says, well, the the help might be right outside the door right now. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? And there's also this side plot of the hag and the werewolf who is talking to Caspian and saying, well, maybe we should ask the white witch for help. And, I mean, that's that's a bit of a side plot. It doesn't really, I don't really see much in that. I mean, the question is, well, what sort of power would you draw upon to win your battle? And if you could draw upon the the, the dark powers to win, would you do it? But just at the opportune moment, Peter and his crew burst in and says, no, don't do that. You're evil. We're never going to work with the White Witch or any of her remaining spirit of whatever that might be. And then, well, they've arrived. Peter meets Prince Caspian and they catch up. They've obviously got a lot to talk about. They've got a lot of a situation to take care of because they're in the middle of a battle and this is the help that has been said to save the day. So probably I think that's about enough for today. We're almost at the time when we can move on to something else. Whatever that is meant to mean. I have no idea what that means. So we'll continue the rest of the plot. in the next installment. And that will be the second part of Prince Caspian. So thanks very much for tuning in. We'll be back very soon with more. And that's all I have to say for now.